Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers come together and have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft Law, and joining me as co-host today is my friend, Jack Sanker of Smith Admonson. Hey, Jack. Happy to be here. So, Jack, this is our latest installment of our COVID-19 episode series, and we're joined today by Professor Anne Lucine of the University of Illinois John Marshall Law School. Professor Lucine is not only a constitutional scholar, but one of the foremost experts on Illinois' constitution, which I think will probably be a big part of today's conversation. In fact, after graduating from law school, she served as a research assistant at Illinois' Sixth Constitutional Convention, helping to draft that document. And she went on to work for the Illinois Speaker of the House and actually served for two years as the parliamentarian of the Illinois House. Professor Lucine has also served as chair of the CBA's Constitutional Law Committee, regularly speaks and lectures on constitutional subjects, and of course, teaches constitutional law at John Marshall. Professor, welcome to At the Bar. My pleasure. So, Professor, we asked you onto the podcast today to help us make sense of a debate that is simmering in several parts of the country, almost boiling over in others, concerning constitutional challenges to state and local government stay-at-home and quarantine orders. And I think we're seeing a small but vocal minority take to the streets and resort to the courts, and at least in one case, actually storm a state capital armed. And they were arguing that stay-at-home and quarantine orders violate their fundamental rights. Now, as usual, the legal merits or lack thereof of that issue are being drowned out by the political heat, let's call it, surrounding them. But we're here with you to get into the weeds a bit and find out whether, from a legal and constitutional standpoint, there is anything to these complaints and protests. So I thought we could start by providing a little context just to ground the debate in historical rather than just legal precedent. This isn't the first time in the U.S. history that state and local governments have imposed similar measures in response to epidemics. Isn't that right? That's correct. It goes all the way back to a yellow fever epidemic in the 1790s in Washington, D.C. Right. And Philadelphia, I think, in um, 1793, Mm -hmm. right? Just which is a couple of years after the Constitutional Convention. At one time, Congress adjourned so that everybody could get out of town before they all had to be quarantined because of yellow fever. So this was something, what, what that tells me, tell me if you agree, that tells me that the Founding Fathers were very familiar, not only with epidemics, but with the government, local and state government, taking these kinds of measures to control those epidemics. Is that right? Yes, very definitely. They were not aware that it was the mosquitoes that were causing malaria and yellow fever. They just figured every summer we get this fever that comes in. And it you know, it wasn't until about 1900 that we figured out the Anopheles mosquito was the problem here. Uh, so they just simply had to leave town, close down everything. There would be uh, everything closed. You talk about restaurants today, restaurants, government buildings, everything closed. Right. And it seemed, when I was doing my research on this, it seemed like there's thousands of years of historical precedent for the sovereign or governments taking those kind of measures. I could trace it as far back as uh, the book of Leviticus, which I think authorized priests to quarantine people who were sick. Yeah. <laughs> but I also saw examples in medieval Europe 
during the Renaissance uh, and early modern times. Uh, I think actually the word quarantine comes from uh, the Venetian dialect for quarantina, which, you know, for 40 days, which is what they required ships. You are absolutely right. That's yeah. exactly where it comes from. So they required ships docking in the Venetian port to hold for 40 days to try to stop the spread yeah. of bubonic plague. So there's a lot of uh, th this this measure, this public measure has a long vintage. I think it was also talked about in Blackstone, which, you know, as an appellate lawyer, I always love getting, getting uh, elbowed deep in. But Jack, this has happened in Chicago before as well, right? Yeah. And in light of especially as you mentioned, some of the public pushback on all of this, it's probably good to point out the precedent, not only going back to Leviticus and Venice and everywhere else, but you know, here in Chicago um, in the early 1900s. I mean, it's just the Spanish flu, of course, which is probably the closest thing in recent history to what we have here in terms of a uh, epidemic outbreak. So the Spanish flu obviously was a strain of influenza that ultimately caused something like, I think, 50 million deaths uh, worldwide and hit Chicago in a noticeable, um, noticeable numbers beginning in September of 1918, which when roughly 250 or 260 cases were first reported. At that point, state and local governments began ramping up restrictions on certain activities, much like what we saw here locally in March and April of 2020 in response to the coronavirus. Uh, the first bit of restrictions and local regulations dealt with uh, mandating that people carry uh, handkerchiefs in their pockets to cough and sneeze on. And there's a great bit of history about Chicago police officers being asked to stop persistent sneezers and coughers. Uh, and <laughs> who, who weren't covering their faces with these handkerchiefs and violators who promised that they would use the handkerchief next time were let off with a stern warning. But any, anyone who gave the officers uh, a hard time would be arrested and eventually arraigned, um, which is kind of similar to what you're seeing, how the enforcement of some of these uh, uh, shelter in place rules are like on the lakefront here in Chicago. So, okay. yeah, so this was in September of 1918. Early in October, so roughly two and a half weeks later, October 11th, the city closed down um, dance halls and concert halls. Uh, October 16th was then almost a total ban in theaters, public gatherings, um, taverns, things like that. Uh, and at the end of October into early April, things began to open up gradually with total restrictions being lifted sometime, I think it was November 16th in 1918. So ultimately, the shelter-in-place uh, equivalent of what happened during the Spanish flu outbreak here in Chicago lasted from the end of September through November, roughly a month and a half. Uh, currently, Illinois has been subject to a shelter-in-place order since March 21st, uh, and we're recording this today is, what, May 11th, meaning that we've, we currently, as this episode is being recorded, have been sheltering in place for about as long as the entire duration of the shelter in place order uh, that was set forth during the Spanish flu. Okay. So there's plenty of historical precedent for this, you know, whether you go back to prehistoric Israel or 1918 Chicago. Professor, let's switch over to the legal side of things. At the federal level, let's start broadly. At the federal level, 
is the legality, or I should say the constitutionality of these kinds of orders, a question of settled law, or is it still uncertain? The problem is federalism. Uh, And most of the time, including now, the president of the United States does not push the issue of whether he has authority or the governors have authority. But certainly, they seem to have some kind of shared authority, and the shared authority varies from occasion to occasion. You had Mm -hmm. typhoid epidemics and yellow fever epidemics. Clearly, the president had authority in Washington, D.C., but did he have authority when the seat of government was in Philadelphia, New York? And Washington never pushed that uh, when he was president. So you mentioned shared authority, and I suppose that brings up, like you said, federalism and the intersection, where the line is between federal and state authority. Gibbons v. Ogden, 1824 case, I think we could probably start there, right? John Marshall says in the context of an interstate commerce clause dispute, which I think goes directly to what you were just talking about, he lists quarantines as among those broad powers that are traditionally that traditionally fall within the police power that's reserved to the states, right? Yes. And you would also have on the federal level the issue of national security. Uh, Hmm. If everybody is dying of typhoid, yellow fever, malaria, or whatever, what happens to the army? Right. Okay, so that's a great point. There's an intersection here between national security law, national security interests, constitutional considerations, and public health law as well, right? Right. Okay. There was one case that I found, um, you know, bumming around Westlaw a little bit that seemed directly on point as to whether this was settled law. And tell me if I'm misreading it, but it was a 1902 case, Compagnie Francaise v. Louisiana Board of Health. And there the Supreme Court seemed to say that, or held rather, that it was constitutional for a state to require the involuntary quarantine of individuals to stop the spread of disease. And it wasn't a due process violation and it wasn't a Commerce Clause issue. What am I missing there? I mean, that seems directly on point when we're talking about the constitutionality. Yeah, that's absolutely right on point. And I'll bet you that the disease in Louisiana was yellow fever, which bore the nickname Yellow Jack. And it used Mm -hmm. to be said that the most terrible word to be uttered in New Orleans or anywhere in the South during the summer was to say Yellow Jack, meaning somebody had just keeled over on the floor with yellow fever because it meant there would be quarantines. It meant people would die. Okay. So if it's established law that quarantine laws are constitutional and not due process violations, then where, what, what's the problem in terms of finding an intersection between federal and state law and determining where the police powers start and end? We don't know. We've never figured that out because usually the quarantine doesn't last more than a month or two. The Mm. uh, Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 came in two waves, in the spring and then again in the fall. So that by the time the spring one was over and everybody was out in the streets again for the summer, nobody wanted to litigate what was over. But then it came back again in the fall and they started with litigation, but it never got anywhere. I suppose everybody's mind was on the end of World War One. Hmm. That's a fairly settled part of federal law. Let's zoom in on the Illinois Constitution a bit. Does the Illinois Constitution map perfectly to the federal Constitution with these questions? 
No, because we don't, we're not part of the interstate commerce clause. At most, we're part of the dormant commerce clause, which has no relevance here, really. And we have a, a provision in the Illinois Constitution, Article 5, Section 8, that says the governor has the supreme executive power. So any residual powers that there are, that an executive would have, reside in the governor. Uh, and governors have had quarantines before. Governors have sometimes had something close to martial law. As long as it doesn't last too long, and as long as it is reasonable, and as long as it's imposed on just about everybody, nobody really seems to object. That, that does seem to be the line in state law, whether it's arbitrary, oppressive, and unreasonable. That's a phrase that seems to be repeated a lot. Well, we do have a due process clause in our state constitution. And more important, what we're going to see in the next few weeks is an equal protection clause, because Governor Pritzker was just saying today that he's going to continue the stay at home and closing the businesses at least till May 29th and then mm -hmm. start reopening. Well, which businesses are going to reopen? If he reopens the hair salons but not the restaurants, is that reasonable? And now we get into equal protection and due process. So that's where you expect to see a lot of future litigation? Yeah, that'll be the next line. Uh, and it is hard. I'd have to say I regret that both on the federal and state level, the executives have said essential businesses versus non-essential businesses. Practicing lawyers are essential. I'm a law professor. I'm non-essential. How do you think that makes me feel? Okay, <laughs> We've closed educational institutions, including law schools. We're doing everything online. And I think the question is going to be not essential versus non-essential, but whether they've been fair to all businesses. Like if restaurants can open and say everybody has to be six feet away, we'll put the table six feet away. And but not the same with uh, hairdress salons or concerts or movie theaters. Now you're going to have an equal protection problem because you're depriving people of their livelihood, which is, you know, life, liberty, property. Okay, so that that gets at balancing liberty interests versus public safety interests. Where would you draw that line? Yes, but also whether in fact. Are movies, if people are seated six feet apart, are movies really any more dangerous than a restaurant or less dangerous than a restaurant? And this is going to be the issue as we reopen. As you know, many of these smaller businesses have already said they don't think they're going to be able to reopen at all. Right. Do you think that's something that courts are equipped to answer, whether one business setting is more dangerous than another? Yes, and I think if we're unless we open a lot of businesses at the end of May, hopefully with the guidelines and, and, and really get the cooperation of all of us regarding the guidelines, I think you're going to see quite a bit of anger and quite a bit of litigation because people's livelihoods are at stake. There is no question about it. Professor, to your point earlier, though, what it seemed like historically what would happen is people would get upset or would otherwise aggrieve and want to bring litigation to sort of uh, reopen things. But by the time that litigation got wheels, things were reopened already. Yeah, they were reopened uh, in 1918, the two waves in 1918, you know, uh, by the time summer came around, everything was reopened. 
Right. And, you know, specifically with regard to Illinois civil courts, uh, they're closed right now operating in, you know, very limited capacity. Um, the idea that you could get a judgment on something, whether it's in, and go through the appeal process, any, any quicker than it normally is, which is, you know, a year or so seems like the quarantine itself will have resolved itself before you'd get resolution in the courts. Yes, but I hate to be a doomsayer, but it is expected that you know, everything will get better this summer, but that sometime along about Halloween, we're going to get the second wave again. So it would be nice if we could get these issues litigated in time to address the ramifications before the fall epidemic comes through. You understand what I mean here? Yeah, absolutely. And you saw, even looking back when I was kind of going through some of the historical impacts on the Chicago legal scene of the prior shelter-in-place order during the Spanish flu, uh, you, you saw a very limited amount of legal activity specific to the time in which things were on lockdown, which was like September through November of 1918. But then the rest of that year in general, there was less litigation than in about five years prior. So like 1913 through 1918. And I'm, I'm getting these numbers basically by looking at the number of decisions that were issued from the appellate courts and the Supreme Court of Illinois. Specifically, litigation seemed to have gone, and this is my general calculations from kind of poking around on Westlaw, but this is about 25% less litigation during 1918 than in the uh, couple of years prior. I think just from you know being a civil litigator and experiencing the ways in which the court system is kind of slowing down due to all this, I think that things are going to move even slower than they usually do in Illinois civil courts. Mm -hmm. I understand from uh, some people who work in the courts that people are filing lawsuits and then settling almost immediately because it's going to take so long before they completely reopen the court. So both sides have decided they better hold a settlement conference. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it is a good thing. <laughs> Certainly not a good thing for the lawyers, though. Well, yeah, there is that question. But a lot of litigants are saying that, you know. Um, I, I really don't know what's What do you think is going to be the permanent part? I really don't know. Will people then say, you know, I just love doing everything online with the courts? Uh, why should we go into the judges' chambers? Why should we go into court? And let's just hold online settlement conferences. There could be a lot of changes in the practice of law. I think so. I think that you're going to see a greater utilization of um, alternative dispute resolution services uh, in particular, which I think has already seen an uptick, at least in the past month or so, as, as people are realizing, well, we still have legal issues to resolve. We still have litigation. Um, the courts are closed. Let's take this elsewhere. So there'll probably be some lasting effect there. But you know, everyone still wants their day in court. So, Professor, getting back to the constitutionality of the stay-at-home orders, there have been a couple challenges already in Illinois. In one of them, Bailey v. Pritzker, a judge from downstate Illinois, actually issued a temporary restraining order preventing the governor, and joining the governor, I should say, from enforcing the stay-at-home order against the plaintiff. What do you make of these challenges? I think they're going nowhere fast. 
I don't blame the circuit court judge down in Clay County. On the face, this would seem reasonable, but the Illinois Appellate and Supreme Court, that is going to be the Supreme Court, because I think they'll bypass the Appellate Court. Eventually, they'll say, no, let's not uh, talk about this. Uh, And I noticed that a hairdresser running a salon in Clay County has said, you are depriving me of my livelihood. And she's also talking about the uh, 30-day rule. I don't think they realize that the 30-day rule is part of a statute. You know, no uh, order for closing businesses or staying at home can exceed 30 days. But another part of the statute says uh, nothing shall inhibit the power of the governor under the Constitution statutes or common law to issue an order of martial law or emergency measures. And that relates back to the state's police powers that we were discussing before. Exactly. Right? It's a, you know, somebody said to me, well, what would be the common law here? It's really the inherent police power here. And we should probably say for our audience who isn't familiar with constitutional law that when we're discussing police powers, we're talking about states' traditional authority to regulate in the name of public health, safety, and welfare, right? Right. Okay. What about the other case? There was a case filed in federal court. I have to admit, I can't think of the name right off the top of my head, but it was filed by a church group. And the Northern District of Illinois recently shot that challenge down, saying that uh, the stay-at-home order. Uh, That's the beloved church, a Protestant uh, evangelical church out in Stevenson County in the northwestern part of the state. And the problem with that is they're arguing that since they are a religion, a religious group, that you can't force them to shut down. And obviously, mm-hmm. people seated next to each other in pews would be just as dangerous as people seated next to each other in movie theaters. There's, As the Judge Lee pointed out in the district court case, this is just the same as people sitting next to each other. The governor is not singling out churches. Right. So the free exercise of religion doesn't include the right to get your neighbor sick, right? Yeah, and it also means they can exercise their religion if they wanted to be out in the open or six feet apart, or as most churches are doing these days, having online worship services. Nobody would say that they couldn't do it. It's the fact that they are next to each other and spreading germs, which they then can take to people who were not at the church service. So let's flip the chessboard. Is there a good argument somewhere, either at the federal or state level, challenging these laws on a constitutional basis? Are are these the two cases that we've discussed? Are they just missing the mark completely? Or is there a path forward for them, perhaps pursuing a different argument? There's a path forward if the governor or need the president were to open certain businesses, but not other businesses, even though both businesses would be similarly situated. That is to say, they could say, we'll seat everybody six feet apart, people will be wearing masks, there will be hand sanitizers. I like to say if a restaurant has salt, pepper, and hand sanitizer on every table, that's probably a good idea. Or they could, And they could have had hand sanitizers as you enter the movie theater. There are a lot of things that they could do. And if by any chance the governor were to single out movie theaters but not restaurants or vice versa, then they will have an argument. But we'd have to wait and see that to happen. 
a couple of them have been making the argument the governor has turned into a tyrant. And that would only be if the executive order to stay at home or to keep the businesses closed went on well beyond the uh, time of the pandemic. And I don't think we are in that situation yet. Okay, so that brings, I think, to the fore an interesting point, which is that something that is constitutional today under the current circumstances may be unconstitutional a month from now when underlying circumstances change, right? Yes, when the circumstances change. There's a rule of reasonableness here always. Uh, I suppose the theory is you know, sort of Hitler came to power under the emergency powers provision of the Weimar Constitution. We're a long way from that, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask. There's angry people in Michigan <laughs> that would disagree with you, I think. <laughs> they all have guns and beards. So, Professor, there are civil liberty concerns that are that go beyond the constitutionality question, though, right? Something may be constitutional, but it could still be concerning. That is what I am told. Uh, Right now, I haven't seen any litigation. I haven't heard of the ACLU filing a suit. Have you? I've not. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, I'm just thinking of, you know, the ultimate law school example, Kori Matsu. Yes. Which held constitutional the involuntary detention of persons with Japanese heritage during World War II. And technically, that's still on the books. Where you might start seeing things is... um, if people are not allowed into nursing homes to say goodbye to dying relatives, there you okay. might see a I have the right to say goodbye to my mother situation. And those mm-hmm. are extremely painful. But you know, there are people dying in nursing homes of COVID-19. And here again, we have a balancing act, don't we? You go in and you say goodbye to your mother and you kiss her goodbye and now she's gone and you walk out and you infect some other people who will then die. I'm thinking more about some the way in which these challenges are going to come forth that are you know maybe a little bit, or at least what I've seen people complaining about uh, that I, I think it may be a little off the wall. For example, um, there's been travel restrictions put in place to prevent people from going to their uh, vacation homes, things like that. As the professor mentioned earlier, so much of this is going to be based on uh, the reasonableness of the restrictive measures in place. But as the situation changes, that reasonableness standard is going to change with the science, which is why so much of this argument uh, is revolving around, well, what is what, what do the scientists say? What does the CDC say? What does Anthony Fauci keep saying? Um, all of those things. How much are the courts going to, or how much room are the courts going to give in a hypothetically litigated case uh, to these authorities? You know, if the CDC sets forth some type of guideline or guidance on social distancing uh, that the governor adheres to, but a lawsuit is brought challenging the constitutionality of it, how much deference uh, is the court going to give to um, these scientific institutions? I think a lot of deference because death is here. It's a ma- death, uh, as the United States Supreme Court said in a different context, death is different. It's so final. If it were that people were just getting sick and they were out of uh, work or school for a week, it might be different. But now we're talking about how many thousand, it's over 2,000 here in Illinois, isn't it, who've died of COVID? And, and we're going probably going to get 
hundreds of thousands of people dead in the United States within the next year. So it really it means they're going to have to give a lot of deference to any government agency that can show it is relying upon medical statistics. You know, Professor, Jack's question brings another one to my mind, which is, so we've talked about how Congress can regulate travel between the states during these crises. And right. we've talked about how, how governors can regulate travel within states during these crises. Can governors regulate travel between the states? Like, can they? What do you think about the constitutionality of those states that have essentially closed their borders? That one is very tricky. By the way, a couple of Indian tribes, the Oglala Sioux, and a couple of others have been setting up essentially checkpoints near their reservations, saying we have very little medical care on our reservations. Our people will die if they are infected. And that's probably true. They have very poor medical care on reservations. And we don't want people coming in. And the governor of South Dakota has said, you can't do that. They've got a special situation because federal reservations for Native Americans are treaty lands, right? So they're under the federal government. They're not under the state government. Can the governor of Illinois prevent people from coming over from um, Indiana, which I notice open today pretty much? That one is a very tricky one. I suspect uh, the governor of Illinois isn't going to try that, but what if he did? And I really don't know the answer to that question. It seems to me it would be interfering with a general right to travel, but what if people start dying and we can trace it to Indiana? Again, a sure. rule of reasonableness, right? So what are the constitutional considerations there? Well, there is a federal right to travel uh, from state to state. It's interstate commerce, and it's also a personal liberty right. But there is really no right to carry a disease from state to state either. At one time, if you were coming into California by car, and I remember this in the 1950s, you were stopped and they asked, do you have any fruit or vegetables on you? And many people did. A lot of people traveled carrying fruit as snacks. And they'd say, let's see the fruit, because we do not want fruit diseases coming in to infect our crops here in California. And the Mm -hmm. courts upheld that. They said they have a right to make sure that their products, their uh, orchards are kept safe from all of these uh, diseases. Well, if you can protect your oranges in uh, California, why not your people in California? So it seems like a lot of these disputes are kind of setting up the the central conflict that we've seen play out so many times of federally guaranteed rights coming into uh, friction with um, individual state powers. So the federal right to travel versus um, state police powers that would extend to the borders within the state, the federal rights of um, free exercise, for example, even though there may be... uh, there's going to be a state equivalent in each state's constitution, but generally the free exercise clause of the federal constitution versus the state's intrastate interest in keeping its uh, citizens from spreading disease to one another. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that the litigation is going to come in primarily in those forms, whereas people are going to be bringing these cases in federal district courts 
alleging a grievance, they're being aggrieved and their federal constitutional rights are being violated by the state actors. Uh, yeah. And you're going, you're going to see these disputes between the federal and state constitutional provisions. That and that is a huge question. I was intrigued that the church in Stevenson County brought uh, the free exercise of religion clause in federal court right away. They didn't start with the state courts. So people are looking to their federal rights, and there is a federal right to travel. And I was just going to ask, piggybacking on Jack's question, where the line is when we're talking about federal preemption. Where can Congress, when can Congress overrule states' police powers? Usually through the Interstate Commerce Clause. We saw that with the civil rights era in the 1950s and 60s and early 70s. The right to travel included the right to uh, have a meal at Ollie's Barbecue in uh, uh, Alabama because they were on near an interstate highway. And so you had part of uh, the right to travel, which was to a certain extent under the Commerce Clause, and that may be what we have again. Uh, but here again, I'm expecting that things will loosen up quite a bit over the summer. And then what will happen to all of that litigation? I suspect it will sort of stay around in abeyance until, of course, the fall when it's all going to come back again, if the predictions are correct, that we're in for a second wave around Halloween. Right. And... Well, uh, I was just thinking there's exceptions to the mootness doctrine if there weren't a second wave, I, although I think you're right, there almost certainly will be. Oh, yeah. I but don't it, think it's been going to be a question of mootness. I think just a question of how far the courts, federal or state, can move. But we'd mm. better get these issues settled over the summer as to what we're planning on doing, because, as I say, all of the predictions are that come the late fall, we're going to be back in the same mess again. And those countries that we're seeing that are already opening up are starting to see their infection rates spike once again, so we may not have to wait until the fall. Yes, and we have a problem because they're already getting really the beginning of summer in much of Europe, especially in Italy. So everybody's going out onto the streets. Uh, and, you know, generally the nights in Italy, people tend to go walking, you know, in the streets, Italy and Spain. So now we're going to have the pandemic back again for the summer. And I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, really, uh, we don't have summers quite like they have in Southern Europe. And of course, they don't have air conditioning the way we do. So they go out in order to kind of get cool. I absolutely think we're going to have to settle some of these issues before we get the next wave. By the way, I figure, don't you, that about every three or four years, we're going to have a pandemic. Really? What makes you say that? Uh, we had SARS, we had MERS, and the corona, all within the last 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the current coronavirus is a variation on SARS. Right. So we seem to have a family of viruses that will start anywhere in the world. And it doesn't matter where they start. You know, supposedly... The 1918 one started in Spain. Well, really, it was reported first in Madrid, but we don't know where it really started. Uh, mm -hmm. We think the current one started in Wuhan, China, but it could have started anywhere because in our world economy, 
where I have flown from the United States to Hong Kong in 14 hours. We're all one world as far as diseases are concerned, aren't we? I think that that's a compelling argument on the federalism issues that we've you know really been centering on here is um, the need to resolve these issues, not just to, to address the question of state versus federal authority uh, before the second wave of the coronavirus hits, but as you mentioned, in advance of the potential for the next epidemic to hit. We can't be starting from scratch um, in terms of you know, these central questions on what the state's allowed to do versus your individual rights under the U.S. Constitution every time there's a pandemic, uh, if we are going to see an uptick in infectious diseases like you seem to think. This is going to require a lot of cooperation between the state governments and the federal government. For some years now at John Marshall, we've had an elective called uh, the International Legal Implications of Public Health. In other words, international public health, including pandemics. And some of our people went over to the Czech Republic and gave a a talk on it a couple of years ago. And the result is that the Czechs adopted a lot of these rules anticipatorily, figuring we're going to have to face this. We're a little country of 10 million people in the center of Europe. We're very vulnerable. You may have noticed the Czechs have a very low infection rate because they were already prepared. They knew they were in a very bad situation geographically. So, Professor, one of the things that you've been saying throughout the podcast is that we need to settle these questions soon. But it it seems to me also in talking to you that a lot of these questions are already settled. You know, the constitutionality of state quarantines and stay-at-home orders, that seems fairly clear after speaking with you. The constitution at the federal level also seems fairly clear. There's some uncertainty about the interplay between federal and state power in the context of federalism, but really what what other questions are there to decide here? Or is it just a question of seeing if we're going to stick with precedent and you know the doctrine of stare decisis? I think it's a question of being prepared and saying, if we get a pandemic, this is what we are planning on doing. Anybody have any objections right now ahead of time? And say, we are going to have a phase one that will be the following, bang. And we're going to have phase two, we will do the next group of things. And then we will uh, have a, uh, we will talk about reopening and reopening will be based upon the following uh, rules and assumptions. And I think that that would uh, really help a lot here. So we aren't, we won't be just trying to figure it out day to day. So that'd probably have to come in the form of federal legislation. Well, sometimes you can get not only interstate compacts, but believe it or not, and I know this is going to sound like I'm being a Pollyanna, every now and then, The federal government and the state governments do work together. And I know that this is now an election year. This is a presidential election year and things are very contentious. But I would like to think that the federal and state governments could say this is beyond who gets elected president. We have to think about what we are going to have to sign on to before uh, the fall uh, disaster occurs, if it does occur. 
By the way, there's one thing people don't realize, and that is the 1918 epidemic. Mostly uh, the uh, deaths occurred because so many people got pneumonia. And in in those days, before penicillin, there was really no way to cure pneumonia. So now we bring up the question of what if we get a vaccine or what if we get a good way of fighting COVID? That could change the situation again. And on that hopeful note, we're going to take a quick break. This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by CourtFiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process while quickly addressing the pains that can arise from a newly mandated process. Courtfiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at courtfiling.net to take advantage to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let courtfiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. And we're back. Professor, we like to end uh, each podcast with a game that we call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. The rules are pretty simple. I've done a little bit of research on a law that is still on the book somewhere in the world, but probably shouldn't be. I've also made another one up. I'm going to pull you and Jack to see if we can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Are you ready to play? Right. All right. Why don't you go first? Here are the two possible laws. First one. In China, it is illegal to publicly use the phrase, I oppose or I disagree, both of which are censored by the government. That's option number one. Option number two, in Massachusetts, it is illegal to drag or hang from vehicles, cans, other metal objects, or wood objects uh, from moving vehicles in particular, if those objects hang low enough to touch the ground. Which one do you think is real? The Massachusetts one. Why is that? It really sounds like Massachusetts. Uh, a, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. But, you know, it, it creates noise. It could uh, create problems with the road. The cans could fall off uh, the strings. That sounds like uh, Massachusetts. On the other hand, I, I must say uh, the culture in China is such that they do not normally of, of, uh, publicly oppose each other. They tend to have a culture of uh, public conciliation, as it will. But I still would choose the Massachusetts one. All right, Jack, what about you? What do you think? Uh, I think the Massachusetts one sounds uh, like something I can conceive of uh, being necessary at some point in that state. Um, you know, a bunch of like... Patriots fans dragging around garbage from their trucks. Uh, I, you know, I could see them needing to address it legislatively, so that seems plausible to me. 
Well, I am happy to say that I have fooled both a constitutional scholar and a friend. The China law is real. The Massachusetts one I just thought up over lunch. Oh, wow. Oh, my. Yeah, it was Pat. The China law was actually passed in 2018 as part of a legislative package that uh, removed term limits for the current president. So I don't think there's (laughs) that was a coincidence. Right. (laughs) Those are related. (laughs) Also, but try dragging cans from your car in China and see what happens. You know? Yeah, I'm good. No, I don't <laughs> think so. Anyway, that's going to be our show for today. I want to thank our guest, Professor Anne Lucine of the University of Illinois John Marshall Law School for this educational and edifying discussion. Thank you, Professor. My pleasure. Anytime. I also want to thank my co-host, Jack Sanker, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, the CBA, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network, all of whom are doing a remarkable job in trying circumstances. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate and review us or leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, stay safe. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. Bye.